Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21 today. It's, it's a longer passage. I'm going to begin by reading it, and you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. It's also in the little booklet. And again, for those who are newer here, we've been going through Mark's gospel for actually about 13 months now, and we are in Mark 8. We're, we're about the halfway point. Uh, at this time. But I just read yesterday, you know, Jesus had only been with the disciples for probably a year at this point. So we're kind of on time uh, with, with how the Lord was doing things. So Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples and, to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 
And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? May God bless his holy word. As I was reading that, if you've tracked through the the Gospel of Mark, how many of you experienced a little deja vu in that story? As you look at it, people recognize and they say, haven't haven't we been through this before? And of course we have. In Mark chapter 6, there is a feeding of the 5,000 there. This was 4,000. And it's very similar, but I'm putting on the screen, and this actually, uh, this information was given in one of the commentaries that I mentioned. It's very good. William Lane kind of points this out, and it's to show the deja vu you're experiencing is actually much deeper than you and I would realize. The entire section from Mark 6, 31 through chapter 8, verse 30 is entirely parallel. So Mark 6, 31 to 44 is feeding the crowd. We just read that in Mark 8, 1 to 9. Immediately after he feeds the crowd, Jesus crosses the sea in both occurrences. Remember the ones when he comes walking on the sea and was about to pass by them. And this one we saw, he went to the other shore. In both of them, there is immediately a conflict with the Pharisees after he crosses the sea. The one over the tradition of the elders, what is clean, what is unclean. This one here today is them testing him and wanting a sign. In both of them, there's a parable about bread. You remember the Syrophoenician woman. And, you know, it's not right to take the bread and toss it to the dogs. Today, Jesus is saying, you know, watch out for this leaven that comes in and it leavens the entire loaf that is there in front of you. Both of them, we, we're not even reading this week, but both of them are followed by a healing. One, the healing of a man who cannot hear, and the other, the healing of a man who cannot see. These terms ought to start sounding familiar. And then in both of them, the climax of the entire story is a great confession of faith. As we saw last week, he does all things well. And as we're going to see next week, Peter's confession, which is in many ways the high point of the gospel, you are the Christ. And so the sense of deja vu is because everything is actually being repeated. There is a doublet that runs through this entire passage. And this is because Jesus and Mark are patiently teaching the disciples and us so that we don't miss the point. The disciples are a little thick, right? We've seen they've struggled to understand, and unfortunately, so are we. Thankfully, Jesus is very patient, and so he does everything not just once, he's doing everything twice, the same things over and over again to teach them. So we're going to dig in today, but because of all these doublets, we'll do it a little bit differently than what we might expect or if we were just teaching it on its own. So we're going to look at the feeding in the wilderness, part two, but Um, we're only going to look at it briefly and then kind of dive into the rest of the discussion. Now, this is clearly another feeding in the wilderness, and there is a lot in common between this feeding and the previous feeding in Mark chapter 6, verses 32 to 46. In both of them, there's not just a a feeding. There are deserted meetings um, with a a hungry multitude. There's, There's a huge crowd out in the desert Um, and Jesus is working to feed them. Number two, Jesus has compassion on the multitude. In the first one, he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. In this one, he just says, I have compassion on these people. 
Number three, in both of them, the disciples are utterly baffled about what to do. That point bothers some modern scholars. How can these guys be so dense? To which I answer, have you not read the rest of the gospel? Everything would prepare you that they're not going to get it, and in fact, they don't. The fourth thing, uh, there's a command to sit. We're specifically told Jesus has them sit. The fifth thing, Jesus, in both instances, takes bread he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he distributes it out to the crowd. He does those same four actions that we do every week when we come to the Lord's table because it's a picture of Christ feeding his people. Uh, number five or six, the food is multiplied both times and there are leftovers both times. And then finally at the very end, both times Jesus dismisses the crowd and Get in, we get into a boat to go across the water. So the stories are very parallel. For this reason, some scholars have said there was really only one feeding of a multitude. And they just kind of, you know, it got a little bit garbled and they put it in there twice. Um, as you might guess, if you know me, I don't agree with that. Okay, Mark's not garbled. Uh, it's not that we figured it out much better all these centuries later. Peter is repeating to Mark what went on. Peter knows there's not one but two feedings. And it's very clear that there's a lot of differences between the passages as well. Number one, Mark chapter six happened in Jewish territory. Mark chapter eight is actually in Gentile territory. And that's important. What had happened with uh, the Jews, where Jesus fed the Jews, is now happening with a predominantly Gentile crowd. Number two, in Mark chapter six, the crowd is only with Jesus for one day. It's not that they've, you know, been out there for days and days and days. In Mark chapter eight, they've actually been with him for three days. Uh, number three, there's different numbers of loaves and fish, and I didn't put it down, but there's actually different numbers of people, and it's even more than the four and 5,000, because in one passage, it's just counting the males. The other one is actually, the word is counting everybody. So there's a, a different size in the crowd. Uh, in Mark chapter six, we're specifically told the crowds were broken into groups of 50 and 100, I think. In Mark chapter eight, he just tells them, you know, sit down uh, in the, the thing. Um, and then finally, the number of baskets of remaining food is different. And this is not because, again, Peter couldn't remember it. These are all distinct things that are happening in these stories because it's letting us know that, no, you need to pay attention. There are two feedings and they have two different things that they are teaching us. And so it's clearly a distinct feeding. And I want to throw up several reasons why it's important. Number one, as I began, there is a parallel structure in all of Mark 631 to 830. And if you pull the feeding out, there's no parallel structure. The whole thing falls apart. It's not just that this is the same. Everything is being repeated twice because Jesus is trying to patiently instruct those who are not understanding. There's similarities but there's also clear differences between the two feedings as Jesus is doing it. And furthermore, the most important thing is this second feeding advances all the themes we've been tracking in the gospel. Remember, Mark, like every historian, is telling us what happened, but he's telling us a story. He's helping us to understand and to enter in not only the fact of what happened, but what it means. And this feeding carries all that forward. You remember we had seen that 
Jesus' trip into Gentile territory began with the conflict with the Pharisees over what is clean and what is unclean. And what did the Pharisees say regarding Gentiles? They're unclean. But what we've been tracking and seeing is, no, Jesus says they're not only not unclean, he goes into their territory and he's ministering to them. So just the way that he had fed an almost entirely Jewish crowd in Mark chapter 6, he is now feeding a predominantly Gentile crowd in Mark chapter 8 because he's showing, no, not only are they not unclean and not able to come to God, I feed them the same way I fed you. I'm your Lord and shepherd. I am their Lord and shepherd as well. Secondly, as we've tracked through this, the Gentiles are surprisingly often more receptive to Jesus than the Jews were. And we, we 2,000 years later can, can miss how astounding that is. That, that is a twist that nobody saw coming. The people who had been prepared for thousands of years oftentimes did not see. And then on the flip side, people who we would not have thought did see. Uh, and we're going to see that even played off that the parable about bread, the disciples don't get. But who did get the parable about bread? A Syrophoenician woman. Okay, that, so you see that playing off. And so all of this, as you remember, in that parable of the Syrophoenician woman where Jesus had said, I can't take bread that's for the children and toss it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the crumbs that fall from the table. Mark is telling us all this to say, do you understand? The crumbs are falling from the table and these Gentile dogs are being fed. Just as I multiplied fish and loaves for, for the Jews, the children, so I am multiplying fish and loaves for the Gentiles. And just as important here at the end because the crowd there around this area in the Decapolis is predominantly Gentile, but there are also many, many Jews. And so don't miss what's happening here. Jews and Gentiles are sitting together and eating together and being fed by Messiah together. That is the church. This is a prefiguring of the church right here. And all this is happening in this feeding in Mark chapter 8. Now, because we've already covered the feeding in Mark chapter 6, and you can go back and, and look that up, and, and I covered all of that and what's going on and some of the symbolism. The symbolism's a little different. It's actually richer in Mark chapter 6. There's more Old Testament allusions and things. But because we did it, I'm not going to cover the, the actual feeding in a detailed way today because I want to move on to what Jesus is wanting us to understand and how Mark is carrying the story forward. So we're going to see Jewish returning to Jewish territory. And again, given everything that happened, we should expect, we would hope that when he returns to Jewish territory, if all of these Gentiles are understanding and are receiving we would hope that this is going to be good news that, and, and Messiah is received by his people. Unfortunately, we read in Mark 8:11 that the second Jesus gets out of the boat, the Pharisees greet him, and make no mistake, they greet him with hostility. Now, notice Mark uses two words. They come and they begin to question him. And the particular word for question here, the Greek word, it can simply mean to ask a question, but it can also mean to dispute, 
to argue, to debate. You have to kind of look at the context and say, is this just throwing out a question or is this more than a question? Is this kind of an accusation? Is this a debate I'm wanting to have? And it's pretty clear what they're really wanting to do is they're wanting to debate. And how we know that is the other word that they are there to test him. That particular Greek word is used for both testing and tempting. So when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, exact same word. What determines whether it's testing or tempting, whether it is a positive or a negative thing, is the attitude, the purpose that lies behind it. The Lord can do this exact thing, and he's testing to refine our faith. When Satan does this, he's doing it to destroy our faith. That's his goal. So it's very clear that the Pharisee's attitude here is one that is wicked. In fact, we're going to see that that drives Jesus' response to him. They're not here to, to learn at the feet of Jesus. They are here to debate with him, to tempt him, to test him, to trap him. That's their goal. And so they ask, notice in verse uh, 12, they continue on, the, the way that they are testing him is asking for a sign from heaven. And you can really get what it is. The NIV says that um, Jesus sighed deeply. It's literally, he groaned deeply in or from his spirit. Okay, this is, a, this is not just a little exasperation. This is from the depth of the being of God in flesh, groaning, why are you this way? I mean, when, when God groans deeply at you, that is not a good thing. But that's exactly what's going on here among those who should have known better. And notice Jesus uses this interesting phrase, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Now we might say, well, Lord, it's not this whole generation, it's just this group of Pharisees. But see, his reason for doing that is that there are examples in the Old Testament of a generation that tests God, that tempts God. And Jesus is comparing them to that generation. The generation we're talking about is from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. We, get, we pick up on this, and it's looking back at the history of the wilderness wanderings in Exodus 17. But notice in Psalm 95, and this is the psalm that is often used as a call to worship. There are many worship songs written out, you know, the, the, about the Lord's being our shepherd, and we are the flock uh, that's under his care. We're the, the sheep of his hand. It's these beautiful words, and then suddenly in the middle of the psalm, it turns. And it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is an important passage because 
It's not only the background to this text, but it's actually quoted in the book of Hebrews as a warning that this is something that is to warn the people of God. Now, the psalmist is remembering the wilderness generation, but I've highlighted two words there, Massah and tested, because they're the exact same word of what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. Okay, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek and the Hebrew words meant the same thing, but it's the exact same word. The word Messiah, the place was named testing because you tested me. You tempted me. This generation is tempting and testing and trying me. And don't miss all the links that are going on here because Psalm 95 is about the wilderness generation. It's Exodus 17. In Exodus 16, God has fed a multitude in the wilderness miraculously. And they immediately turn around and say, yeah, but what are you doing for me today? We, we want you to provide more. Certainly you provided there, but are you going to give us water from a rock? Can, can you take care of us now? And God looks and says, you are a wicked generation. Your hearts are hard. You, you've hardened your heart against me and my way, and therefore you will never enter my rest, is what God says to them. Now, Yahweh has come in the flesh. The Messiah has come. And what has Jesus just done before this encounter? Miraculously fed a multitude in the wilderness. And what does this generation do in response? Yeah, but. Yes, and, and we not only know that you've done it, you've done it twice, but that's not exactly what we are looking for. And so notice what Jesus is doing here is saying, do you not understand in your own scriptures, when you did this in the past, when there was another generation that was just like you, God swore on oath you would never enter his rest. And actually Jesus in, in the Greek um, in Mark chapter 8, basically takes an oath and says, if a sign will be given to this generation, basically may I die. I'm taking an oath. You will not get what you're looking for because you're just like the generation in the wilderness. No matter what the Father did, it was never enough. No matter how many times he revealed himself to you, it did not work because your hearts are hard. And make no mistake, the problem here is not that Jesus has given evidence, not given evidence to them. The entire gospel at this point has been nothing but proof that who is this man? He is the king. He is the Messiah. He has given every evidence. Consider if you go all the way back, way at the beginning of Mark's gospel. He heals a leper, and in Mark 144 tells him, go and show yourself to them as a testimony to them. You're going to be a sign I'm sending to them. And they didn't listen. And in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you remember they're sitting in the synagogue. And a man is there, and he's a paralytic. He's been let down through the roof on a mat. And Jesus looks to him, and what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And their response is, glory, the Messiah has come. Right? Who does this man think he is? Does he think he can forgive sins? And what does Jesus do? Oh, you, you have a problem with that. Okay, look, just so that you know, I do have authority to forgive sins. And he speaks and he heals the paralytic on the spot. An absolute sign he is the Messiah. But then thirdly, there's immediately more conflicts and the rest of Mark chapter two is him consistently showing them from the scripture that the way they have understood who God is, how God works is wrong. And he is here showing them the true ways of God. He does the same thing in Mark chapter seven as we've already seen. You've got your tradition of the elders, but that is not what the word of God teaches. And, and you're nullifying God's word by your tradition. You need to embrace the actual scripture. And then finally, in Mark chapter three, you remember there was a sign where the man came in with a, with a paralyzed hand on the Sabbath. And they're watching, and we know what we've got. We've got all these rules we've created around the Sabbath. They're not in the scripture, but we've made all these rules up. Are you going to violate them? And you remember Jesus says, so that you know that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He heals the man on the Sabbath, and they say, glory to God, right? What, what was it they said at that point? That's it. We got to kill this guy. That's their response to miraculous healing and to the signs God had given all of this shows us the problem is not that there's not evidence. The problem is they refuse to believe. According to Psalm 95, the same thing, that your, their hearts are hardened. You hardened your heart. You refuse to believe. Your hearts are always going astray. And Jesus is telling them, you are the same as that generation. When I delivered the people from Egypt, they refused to believe. And now I have come to deliver you, and you refuse to believe. Their minds are dull. They do not understand. Their hearts are hard, and they refuse to accept the ways of God. And make no mistake, the real issue here, the reason they can't believe, they're seeing all the, the evidences. They even admit that they're happening. But you remember in the one case, they say, yes, he is driving out demons. No, we've never seen anything like this. He's displaying incredible power because he's possessed by Satan. You I mean, just read the gospel. It is over and over and over again. If Jesus goes up, they say they want down. If he turns right, they say they wanted left. If he goes forward, they say they want it backward. If he stops, they say they want him to move. No matter what he does, they will not see. And the problem is in their own heart because they prefer their legalism to God himself. They prefer the idol they have made to the God who actually exists. I was just reading uh, yesterday, I'm reading through C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, and in a story where there's a, there's a character in the story and some kids are asking, Aslan, can't you speak to him? Aslan's a Christ figure. Can you speak to him and help him to understand? And Aslan says, there's nothing I can do. When I speak, he only hears a roar and he basically thinks I'm coming to eat him. No matter how kindly I speak to him, no matter what I do, he refuses to believe. Because from the second the, that 
individual comes into contact with Aslan, he, he hates him. He despises him. He is set against him. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage. Now again, I'm going to unpack a little bit more about signs and wisdom because Greeks had a separate problem, but signs and wisdom and the way of the cross because brothers and sisters, don't read this like, man, what a bunch of dummies. I would have been there really supporting Jesus. Okay, that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is we need God to soften our hearts or we find ourselves in the exact same place. And the way we know this is Jesus then immediately gets back in a boat with the disciples, and surely the disciples are going to understand, right? I mean, they've been there through all of this. But we get back in the boat, and Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, in the Scripture, usually, Jesus had told one parable where the kingdom was like yeast or leaven, but overwhelmingly in the Scripture, what is leaven used for? It's a symbol of sin. Every year they had to do the Feast of Unleavened Bread because you had to clean the leaven out. You had to get rid of it. And so he tells them, look, there's this bad leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Watch out for it. Now remember the parallel structure. This is another parable about bread. Remember the Syrophoenician woman comes in and says, I know you're trying to be alone and I know you need this time off and you're with your disciples but my daughter's got a demon. And Jesus gives her a parable about bread. A Syrophoenician woman who's never been around the Scripture. She's never seen any of this. And you remember in it, Jesus compares her to a dog. And she gets it. And she responds in faith. The disciples, who've had everything going for them, they have been walking with, listening to, watching, eating, drinking, and sleeping next to Jesus for over a year, and their immediate response is complete dullness. Jesus is wanting them to meditate and understand just how destructive are the ideas of both the religious and political leaders of the day surrounding him. So again, as we've seen every time, he speaks in a parable. I want you guys to slow down and think about what you've just watched. Listen, see, think, pay attention. In Matthew 16, we're actually told that, you know, this, oh, it meant the teaching of the Pharisees uh, and the Herodians, not, not literal yeast and literal bread. It, it spelled out for us in Matthew 16. But see, Mark is taking us on the journey just like the disciples. He's saying, I want you to think. I want you to slow down. I want you to take the time and pay attention. Because see, their ideas are like yeast. If they get in the dough, what happens when yeast gets in the dough? It spreads like wildfire through it all. I mean, you know, you put a little yeast in a dough and it's amazing how little you put in there and the whole thing just starts ballooning up. And Jesus is telling them that if that yeast gets in you, you will be as dull, you will be as blind, you will be as deaf, you will be as hard-hearted as they are. Don't let this yeast get in you. But the disciples brilliant, as always, look at one another and say, it's because you forgot to get the bread. Okay? Now, 
I mean, let's face it, this is dull, right? I mean, it's like, ah, you, you just watched him fix this. Mark records, it's a weird phrase, they have no bread except for the one loaf, which is a strange way. Some scholars think the one loaf is a veiled reference to Jesus. Either way you look at it, it's really clear, is not having bread in the boat a real problem? No, we've got the guy who can feed thousands. It's not exactly a problem that for the next couple of hours we didn't bring bread with us. But they don't get it. They completely miss the parable. And again, please hear, the Syrophoenician woman got it. They don't. They have completely and utterly misunderstood it. And so Jesus, you got to hear when you're reading this, his exasperation. Why are you talking about having no bread? I'm not certain, but I bet he probably banged his head on the side of the boat at that point. Like, seriously, how dull can you be? And he takes time then, and he, and, and notice what he asks him. Do you not, what are you talking about? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hard? Can you not see? Can you not hear? Pay attention because we've seen him heal a deaf person. Next week, we're going to see him heal a blind person. So pay attention to what he's saying here and what he's doing in front of him. And he's pointing out, you've seen me do this. Why would you think that would be a problem? And it's because they lack understanding. And what's interesting is, and I won't throw all the verses up, but Jesus leads them through it. Okay, remember when we had the loaves and I expanded. And the disciples were like, oh, oh, I know the answer. I can tell you how many loaves there were, how many fish there were, how many people there were. I can tell you how we distributed. I can tell you all the basketfuls we picked up. And I'm really sorry we didn't bring bread with us. <laughs> they can recite all the facts, all the figures, and they have zero understanding. They still do not know. And so this is a point, please hear me. You and I could recite every fact and figure about who Jesus is, know them all, and have no understanding. It's, you remember in a very scary passage where Jesus says on Judgment Day, there'll be those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and do all this stuff? Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this? And Jesus says, I never knew you. You, you may have known facts and figures. You may have been able to say things, but you did not know me. So what does this mean for us? How do we try and apply this? Applying the word is really pretty simple. We are to watch out for the yeast of Pharisees and Herod. Jesus is warning the disciples about this. And he's warning them and he's warning us that we have to watch this. Now, he doesn't directly explain what the yeast is in this passage. Matthew tells us directly what it is, that it's about their teaching. And we know of the Pharisees' legalism which led them to reject others and even led them to reject Christ himself. But I want you to understand, it's not only the legalism. At the end of it all, because what they're asking for is another sign. 
the Pharisees' problem is they have a theology of glory and Jesus is bringing a theology of the cross. They want a kingdom that is full of power now. I want it where I'm on top now. That's what I want. And Jesus is not offering that kind of a kingdom. We're going to see as he does this, those of us who've read the gospel before, you remember when Peter is the first person in the gospel who says, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. And what does Jesus immediately start teaching them about? Yep, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And what's Peter's response? Sometimes sight is partial. See, they struggled. And, and that yeast of the Pharisees is we want the kingdom the way we want it. Is that ever a temptation for you and me? To, to want, see, I want a kingdom of power especially if I'm in power, right? Anybody else in here that way? Liars. That's what we want. I, I don't like theology of the cross. I don't like, who would like to be the Apostle Paul the day he's saved? Knock him off the horse, Jesus reveals himself, and what did Jesus tell him? I'm gonna show him how much he can suffer for my name. Uh, is there a plan B, Lord? I'd like a different call. See, that's, a, that's the yeast of the Pharisees. That's the yeast of Herod. It has been a temptation down through the ages. And so interesting, notice here, he mentions two groups. One is the conservative religious group. The other one's the political power. But they're both wanting power of a different sort. So the question to you and me, is my heart tempted by a theology of power? Because see, we're told in the scripture over and over again, his power is made perfect in my weakness. But brothers and sisters, you can, you can click on Christian radio or TV or buy books that will sell you a theology of power all over. It is a constant temptation. And what we should do is spread across the cover of the book, yeast of the Pharisees inside. And Jesus says, stay away from that. It is a constant temptation. And what we're going to find is, you know, in the, in the next passage, we'll see next week where we finally understand who Jesus is. Mark's been asking, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And we receive the answer. He's the king. And then what we learn is the king's going to the cross. Wait, it can't be that way. If he's the king, he's not going to the cross. But then we've misunderstood who the king is. So has that yeast spread in my own heart? And that leads to the, the second thing as we get ready to come to the table, which is the importance of a soft, understanding heart. Please don't misunderstand, it's not just the Pharisees. The Pharisees have one problem, but the astounding thing is one would expect, okay, we're gonna get in the boat and the disciples are going to get it. But they still don't understand. They still do not. It's a reminder of our need for God's grace to open our ears, 
to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, and to give us understanding. And you and I can be here even as disciples, because the disciples are in the boat. They are Jesus' disciples. They're not trying to become disciples. They're there, but they're still lacking understanding. Because how often are you and I rubbing shoulders with, with the yeast and the theology of this world around us? And it, it views everything upside down, backwards, inside out. It puts bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter and light for dark and dark for light. And it is a constant thing around us. So even as a disciple, I need to be crying out regularly, Lord, soften my heart. Lord, give me eyes to see. Lord, give me ears to hear. Lord, give me a mind that understands. Because you may know all the facts. The disciples could answer all the questions. I mean, they could have gotten an A on the quiz. But they didn't understand because they were still viewing the world the upside-down way. Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified at the end. Does anybody know what the tradition says he asked to happen? Yet to be crucified upside down. Number one, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way my Lord was. But number two, I remember an old show where Peter said, I want to be crucified upside down because that's the way this whole world is. It sees everything upside down. It's, it's completely upside down, backwards. It's completely broken. And that's the reality of what goes on around us, but it is a danger for you and I constantly. So we need to cry out every day for the Holy Spirit to off, soften our hearts, open our eyes, give us ears and a mind to understand. And we need fresh understanding each day, each week, and each season so we can live faithfully before God. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table, but I'm going to throw up two verses here on the screen to prepare us as we go and why this is so important as we come to the table. Remember in Mark chapter 8, and it uses the same four ideas as in Mark 6. Interestingly, here the word given thanks, in Mark 6 it was the word to bless the bread, which is a Jewish way of looking at it. Mark chapter 8, the verb is actually to give thanks. It's the verb in Greek, eucharisto, the Eucharist. But notice, Jesus takes, gives thanks, breaks, and gives. Just like we have at the Lord's table, we're having a picture here that the miraculous feeding is a preview of what we do every week when we come to the Lord's table. But please hear me, brothers, this is more than just symbol. They, they didn't need symbolic bread in the wilderness. They needed real food. And you and I don't just need symbolic. We need Jesus to come and actually reveal himself to us and to feed us. And notice in another passage in Luke 24, one of my favorite passages, and it's what the Lord used to open my eyes to truly understand the Eucharist. On the day of the resurrection, remember Jesus is with the disciples, and they didn't get it. We thought he was the Messiah, but he got crucified, and we don't know what to do now. And Jesus says, how slow are you to understand, to believe all the prophets are written? And we're told that he takes them through the whole Old Testament, gives them a Bible survey class there on the road, explains it all, and then he goes into the inn with them. And when he's at the table with them, he took bread when he'd given thanks, 
He broke it and he gave it to them. And notice the next phrase, what happened? We knew who he was. And then what I love is, bang, he's gone, which is God's sense of humor. But do you see what's happening? It's in the breaking of the bread. And later on, that's what they say when they get back. They said it was in the breaking of the bread we saw him. We recognized him. Our eyes were opened. So I want to encourage you as we come to the table here. We're not coming for a symbol. We're not coming for religious ritual. If you want religious ritual, go somewhere else. We're coming because we're wanting Jesus to take and give thanks and break and feed and open our eyes. Because brothers and sisters, if he doesn't, you and I will be sitting in the boat and not understanding. We will be stumbling along just like the disciples. But the good news is, can the Holy Spirit do all of this? He absolutely can. He's powerful. If you're here as a believer, you're only here because he has opened your eyes and your ears and your heart. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask him to do the same right now as we come together. I want to say if you are a visitor here, you do not have to be a member of our church to participate at this table. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you understand who he is. You know that he is the Messiah that has come to deliver us from our sins and that your only hope of salvation is his broken body and his shed blood. If you believe that, you are welcome to this table with us. If you don't believe it, you should let it pass because eating and drinking here is a profession. That's what I believe. This is what I hold to be true. This is my only hope. And so if you believe, I invite you and let's come together and ask the Lord to open our eyes. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and pass out the elements as you get them. Please hold on them together. And, and ask the Lord as you're coming to the table, tell him you don't want a symbol. You're not looking for a crumb of bread. You're looking for the Lord to open your eyes to reveal himself to you. And then we will take together in just a couple moments.
Come now, Spirit of God, so that we might have our eyes opened and we might feast from the hand of Christ. Brothers and sisters, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Lord, two times during your earthly pilgrimage, you took loaves, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them out, miraculously feeding a multitude in the wilderness. And on the day of your resurrection, it was when you did this that the eyes of your disciples were opened and they knew you. So now we come to this table, not to merely receive a morsel of bread, but to have our eyes opened again by the Spirit so that we might see you and in seeing understand and in understanding be fed by your hand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Lord Jesus, we take this cup in the fresh realization of our need for your grace. For apart from grace, we could never see or hear. Apart from grace, we could never understand. But because your blood was shed, we have been given the fullness of your Spirit so that we might fully behold and know you. So we gather around you now, giving you thanks and receiving from your hand to slake the thirst of our souls. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. Lord, we patiently thank you for we, we thank you for the way you patiently teach and walk with us, overcoming our dullness so that we might see and hear and know you. But Lord, we confess that the world wants to sow its leaven into our lives, which distorts the way we view everything. So now together we cry out. Spirit of God, help us to be on our guard this week. Spirit of God, cleanse out any old leaven in our hearts so that we might think rightly and live purely. Spirit of God, open our eyes so that as we re read the word and pray and as we serve our King in our daily vocations, we might see Jesus at work in us and through us and all around us. And Lord, we ask that as those who have miraculously received provisions from the hand of God, as those who receive those provisions each day this week, Lord, may we pass them on to others, testifying that everything we have comes from you. Lord, we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus, 
who is our Savior, our Messiah, our King. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now receive the blessing of God. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, having the eyes of your heart enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for everyone who believes. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed beyond all measure. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.